Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening and welcome. Lori and I are trying something new to try and make compliance a little bit more palatable. This is an educational podcast of sorts that will help you, hopefully, better understand your compliance obligations. We hope you'll enjoy these additional materials. And as always, if you're one of our ongoing comprehensive clients, don't hesitate to reach out with your questions because at Advisor Compliance Services, we love to talk compliance. Hey, folks. Great to be back. I know it's been a little while since we've done one of these. I hope you'll forgive me if I'm a little bit rusty. I'll try not to be overly repetitive. I'm also going to be alone. There's going to be no Lori today, so I'm carrying this whole thing by myself. I will work very hard to be both interesting and informative. Okay, so what are we here to talk about today? We're here to talk about the 2023 custody practices review that you've probably gotten in your inbox from Dixie that you're desperately waiting to tear into and mark up and send back to us. I'm sure you're extremely excited. Everybody loves compliance tasks. I'm here to talk to you about how to fill this out, how to kind of understand what you're looking at. Luckily, nothing new has cropped up in the universe of custody, so we can kind of ease right into it. If you're looking at it, you're seeing in the preamble that custody kind of generally just means holding directly or indirectly client funds or securities or, and this is a big or, this big second half is the one that gets most people, is having any authority to attain possession of those things. Everybody gets antsy and they get upset at custody and why? Well, if you've got custody, it's likely that you'll have to do or have performed a surprise annual audit to prove that you've not misallocated client funds. I know none of you would have misallocated client funds. I want to be very clear. But the SEC forces folks to go through this thing because, and I feel like I am contractually obligated to say this, uh, Bernie Madoff stole everybody's money and, and it was a bummer and, and, and they could have done a better job of not letting that happen. Anyway, so okay. So what are we talking about? I said that you may have to get a surprise annual audit if you've got custody. Well, there are actually ways that everybody has custody. I know. I know. Put your pearls down. Stop clutching them. It's okay. Those ways that you probably already have custody are, in fact, called constructive custody by the SEC. They use the qualified term because they want to qualify what you've got so that they can give you a qualified exemption from having to get that surprise annual audit. The two most common ways and these are obviously common because they are common practice in the industry, are direct fee deduction and standing letters of authorization. Okay, So everybody, that's not true, I'm sorry, not everybody, but very many people have direct fee deduction authority to directly deduct folks' fees, and they're pretty familiar with this sort of thing, although some people are occasionally uh, surprised to find out that that is constructive custody. If, if you're directly deducting fees, you know, you just got to make sure that you, in order to avoid the audit, you got to make sure that you've got authorization for that. And you're going to have that in your client agreement, in, in your advisory agreement, rather, and you'll disclose it in your ADV. You got to make sure that, you know, you're doing it from accounts that are an independent qualified custodian. That's extraordinarily common, or I should say it's extraordinarily uncommon to go the other direction uh, with that. You got to make sure that you're providing a report to clients that show the deduction of their advisory fees. Uh, some regulators regard it as a best practice or prod you to have a legend or something on the report that urges clients to compare the advisory fee shown in the firm's reporting and the advisory fee showed in the custodial account statements. And then um, for some folks at the state level, they are required to also simultaneously send a copy of a fee invoice to the client at the same time that it initiates a deduction of the advisory fee. So that kind of goes over uh, quickly, which is what I'm trying to do how you can have constructive custody via direct fee deduction without getting the audit. Second piece uh, or the second possibility is it may be standing letters of authorization. Standing letters of authorization are often a source of 
constructive custody. And if not handled properly, are a source of custody. And I'll explain it quickly by stating, one, if you've got standing letters of authorization that qualify, you've got to ensure that you're following these seven sorts of, these seven requirements that were put out in February of 2017, yes, that long ago, by the Securities and Exchange Commission in a no-action letter for folks who have standing letters of authorization and that you're following these guidelines. Strangely enough, six of those seven things are things you can't do anything about. One, which is number six, is one that you can that is, that the company maintains records showing that the third party is not a related party of the company or located at the same address as the investment advisor. What does that mean to you? I'm probably not sure yet because I haven't actually explained standing letters of authorization. They come in many varieties. They come in many titles. But a standing letter of authorization is some sort of memorialized authorization from your client to you that you know you kind of communicate to the custodian that says, you know, on this long-term basis, potentially indefinitely, my advisor is authorized to move money out of account X into account Y for whatever reason. Used to be folks would just have to re-sign these letter of, letters of authorization monthly when they wanted a withdrawal from their IRA uh, into their checking account for living expenses, etc. It got really cumbersome and painful. So the custodia decided, hey, these are really cool. Let's create these authorizations that don't require people to sign them month after month after month. They'll be standing engagements, uh, as it were. And and so that was great. And then eventually the SEC got hip to it. And they're like, geez, I wonder if this means that you've got sort of unfettered access to you know client funds. And they instituted this policy uh, that I outlined with the seven things that you got to do, only one of which apply to you, which are to track where the, the money's going and to make sure that it's not going to anyone at the firm or anyone related to the firm. But now it's important to note there are two different types of standing letters of authorization, first party and third party. First party ones are not as cumbersome. You've got to, of course, make sure that all the T's are crossed and lowercase j's are dotted on the paperwork and that you're retaining them appropriately, etc. But third party standing letters of authorization are a little different. And those are the ones to which those uh, strictures reply that record keeping requirement I've noted that's the one that that applies to. Additionally, you have to report it on your ADV Part 1 in Item 9, which is the custody section. Okay, so what is a first party and what is a third party? Very simply, very briefly, first party standing letters of authorization are standing letters that authorize the advisor to transfer money between like-titled accounts and third party are for non-like-titled accounts. So, okay, now, what's a like-titled account, you're asking? Perfectly reasonable question. The ownership outlined on the account has to be identical between accounts. So a first party standing letter of authorization would be from Scott Snipke's IRA to Scott Snipke's checking account. That's a first party, right? That's not as troublesome, not as problematic. Third party, well, and I want to be clear, problematic is not a good word to use here, just it has additional you know, record keeping and compliance obligations. It's not that bad. So third party would be, for example, Scott Snipke's IRA to say, I don't know, Scott Snipke and Jen Henley's joint checking account. Why do you and Jen have a joint checking account, you ask? I don't know. Uh, I like Jen. I don't mind that she has access to my money. She's very reasonable and she's extraordinarily responsible. So, okay, great, whatever. So what if you've got that? Well, Jen and I uh, have this joint checking account, but we're not both on that IRA. You're moving money from one account to another account, and they're not like-titled accounts. 
right? There's more folks or different folks on that second account with access to that money. And where that kind of wrinkle comes in is, is those other people on that other account could be folks who are associated with or located at the firm. So what do you got to do if you're doing that? Well, like I said, adhere to that sixth requirement, which is keep a record showing that you know, none of those people who are receiving those funds are associated with or located at the firm. You can do that in a lot of different ways. Some people keep a spreadsheet where they write that sort of stuff down or they have different annotations. Some people just keep copies of all those third-party standing letters of authorization. All right, I have done that to death. I promised myself that I would not just drill you guys into the ground on this sort of stuff. So let's get to it, right? First section of this checklist goes over custodians. It's really not that hard to, to, to sort this out. So the first question is, are all of the assets that you report as assets under management in your ADD held at a qualified custodian? This is often, almost always, frankly, this should be a yes. So if not, we just want an explanation from you. You should know whether the custodian is qual as a qualified custodian or not. So just let us know if they're not, why, how that sort of came about. Give us an opportunity to read and evaluate that. Second question, right? We want you to provide the names of all your qualified custodians that hold 10% or more of client assets for which your firm provides investment management services. If you've got five different custodians with whom you work, and let's say you've got $100 million in assets under management and $95 million of those dollars in assets under management are held at Schwab. Those other four folks, they're not that important. All I want to know is, are they qualified custodians or not? That's in that first question. You don't have to go through the trouble of naming them in the second section. The reason for this is, is because the ADV part one requires that you list all custodia and all their information who have 10% or more of your assets. And that's really just because they're going to come in when they do the exam and they're going to call those folks and ask for some paperwork. Okay. The next one is, has the firm verified that all qualified custodians send clients an account statement at least quarterly to each client for which it maintains client funds and securities that details all transactions within the account for that reporting period? The answer again on that one should probably be yes, but if not, please explain. Okay, the next section, direct fee deduction. We've already actually talked about direct fee deduction. I'm not going to beat this into the ground. So if you do it, great, let us know. Then all these answers that kind of follow down below, right? Do, you know, do you have that written authorization? Boy, you really kind of have to. If you directly deduct fees, you know, it should be in your agreement. And of course, you should be disclosing that in item five, your ADV. Are you, know, are, are you using independent qualified custodians to withdraw all that money? Again, that's almost always going to be yes. I certainly hope so. There's a question in the fee invoice. And then the, the report stuff and then the legend in the report that we went through should be pretty straightforward. And then, of course, if you have direct fee deduction, you've got to disclose it also in item 15. You're going to mention it in item 5. You're going to say, hey, this is how this is these are our fees. This is how we, did, we get our fees. We do you know, direct fee deduction. And then item 15 is a section directly specifically about custody and you mention it there. All right. Receipt of client funds or securities. Does the firm ever accept checks from clients before to the client's custodian? I understand that some people do this. This happens. And I even understand that some custodia have tried to make it easier by, you know, giving you scanners or other options. This is still a fairly disfavored practice of advisors among the regulators. The SEC wants to see that you're getting this in and out of your hands and sending this to the client's custodian immediately. So I believe it's within three business days. Okay. And in order to prove that, you have to maintain a check log, something that's logging all the information when you received it, 
what what it was, how much it was for, when you forwarded it, and where you forwarded it. They want to know that you're you're maintaining records of that sort of thing. It's just extremely important. You've got to check in your hands that represent your client's funds. So you've got to just keep those records. I would note that as a caveat, I know that there are at least some states that are pushing to shorten that check log time frame. Uh, so again, this is just a disfavored practice. So second, does the firm ever receive securities from clients to be forwarded to the client's custodian? The answer should be no to this. You, you don't want this. You shouldn't have this, right? But if you do, you've got to turn it around and send it back from whence it came as quickly as possible. You can't have that. You don't want that. And then maintain some sort of a record that shows that you did that. Great. Standing letters of authorization. I'm not going to hammer this into the ground. We talked about this. The first question is, is do you have authority to transfer client funds between like titled accounts? We've talked about that without obtaining the client's signature for each transfer or withdrawal. There's a couple of new parts of this, right? The authority without obtaining the signature each and every time, that's a standing letter of authorization. Like title account, is it a first party situation? So do you have first party SLOAs is what that first question is asking. If you do, then answer that second question. Do you rely on the authority granted in an SLOA before a transfer is initiated? Yes or no? Just explain it. Next big question. Does the firm have the authority to transfer client funds between non-like title accounts of the client without obtaining the client's signature for each transfer? Do you have essentially third party SLOAs? Answer those questions. And you'll see as we move down, I'm kind of trying to spin through this because we've already really done SLOAs to death and I don't want to put anyone to sleep. The next section under the blue heading is for third-party SLOAs. If you have third-party SLOAs, then answer these questions. Do you disclose it in your ADV Part 1? In other words, do you report all the cash and securities that are held in those accounts that the firm has a third-party SLOA in in its ADV Part 1A Item 9. Remember I said before about that custody section of the ADV. That's what we're asking about there. And we'll verify on our end. We'll look at your stuff. Then does the firm disclose that it has custody as a result of those third-party SLOAs in Part 2A Item 15? If you remember above, I said Item 15 is that section in the ADV Part 2 that talks about custody. Of course, we've already determined that this is a constructive form of custody. Two more questions in this section. It's pretty simplistic, right? Or maybe it's three more questions, sorry. Do you maintain an internal record of all third-party SLOA accounts in such a manner that the firm can validate the amount that it reports in its ADD Part 1, Item 9? Okay, so the wrinkle here is this. If you've got these third-party SLOAs, you've got to tally up the number of accounts that you have that authority in as a result of all those SLOAs and how much money is in those accounts, right? The aggregate amount of money. You make report of that in the ADD Part 1A Item 9, as we pointed out. But what we're seeing on exams is, is examiners coming in and going, okay, well, we see this report you've made in the ADD Part 1A Item 9 about custody. Where'd you come up with that number from? They want you to substantiate that number. Uh, it, maybe it sounds onerous or cumbersome. I'm not really sure. The reality is, is whenever you're doing something like this, whenever you're making these regulatory filings, especially with respect to your numbers, you should be maintaining the records that you're generating to make that reporting so that you can substantiate those numbers to examiners because they're almost always going to ask for those sorts of things. Okay, finally, does the firm follow those seven custody safeguards listed below? That stuff I said, I came back out way back in February of 2017, six odd years ago or whatever. The answer should be yes. I certainly hope it's yes because especially for you folks, right? The only thing that you've got to 
uh, really adhere to is number six, that the company maintains records showing that the third party is not a related party of the company or located at the same address as the investment advisor. Remember, again, like I said, Jen and I have that joint account. Money's coming out of my IRA. It's going into my joint checking account, Scott Sinke and Jennifer Henley. Jennifer Henley's the third person. You know, the SEC doesn't know if Jen Henley works for your advisory firm uh, or if she, you know, she's maintaining an address located at your advisory firm. And those are very simple ways that somebody who was hoping to commit fraud and steal my money from my IRA would do it. So that's why they want those records. Here's the final wrinkle here. You've got a little narrative question back here. You're saying above, yeah, we're maintaining those records. We're doing all that stuff. We want you to kind of describe the process that you got for documenting and complying with that safeguard number six that we just went through. So go ahead and take that space and explain to us how you maintain those records that show that the third party isn't related to you or located at your same location. As I think I said before, you could have a spreadsheet that's got that information in there. Uh, you could have copies of the SLOA. So you just go, no, I got these things in my hot little hands. I know exactly what they say. I know exactly where the money's going. That's fantastic. All right. So general custody question. These should be a little bit more straightforward. Does any firm or related person have a general power of attorney for a client? We're talking about a general power of attorney, not that limited power of attorney that you're getting from uh, from your uh, from your advisor agreement that's allowing you, say, discretion in a client's accounts to make trades. We're talking about general power of attorney. To be honest, you see this the most frequently in scenarios where advisors have a client. The client is a family member. Sometimes it's a mom or a dad who's a little on the older side. And they've got a general power of attorney. If you've got that, please go ahead and just explain that to us. Does the firm or any related person act as a general partner, managing member, or similar position for a limited partnership or a pooled investment vehicle? This is very frequently a no. This should for just about all of us be no's. But if not, please check it yes and explain yourself. Third, does the firm or any related person serve as a trustee for any client? Now, this is going to be very similar to the question above about general powers of attorney. We actually see this on a not terribly infrequent basis where, again, an advisor is a trustee for a family member because they have health needs or they're aging, uh, whatever it may be. In the trustee scenario, you may be a trustee, right, or the firm or a related person may serve as a trustee for a client, but... If that client is a family member and you're an SEC registered advisor, there's an SEC exemption that allows you to do that without it, it's imputing custody on the firm, as long as the reason why you're the trustee is because you're a family member. For some of you folks in some states, the states, some states also recognize that exemption, but not every state recognizes that exemption. So don't get too terribly excited about that. Okay. Does the firm or any related person have check writing authority in any client account? This should, again, probably be no. And then, you know, does the firm or any related person have access to a client's login credentials for a client's outside or held away account? Folks, this is almost always custody. If you're a state registered advisor, this is verboten for multiple reasons, one of which, of course, is, is it may represent custody. But the other one is that many state regulators regard this as a fraud. You're holding yourself out as the client. You're saying, I'm Scott Snipke. That's why I'm, you know, writing in the username Scott Snipke and the password, password one, two, three, four, five to get into this account. And they're, they're saying, you're saying that you're Scott and you're not. The states take this extraordinarily seriously. So if you're a state registered advisor, we cannot encourage you strongly enough to probably not have this sort of a situation going on. It's not, it's not a best practice overall. 
Finally, does the firm require the prepayment of advisory fees of $1,200 or more, uh, rather $500, uh, or more for a state registered advisor for services to be performed six or more months in advance. The wrinkle with this is, is it triggers an ADV disclosure and it would trigger a balance sheet disclosure if you get past this. Uh, it's not necessarily a surprise annual audit sort of thing. Now, here's the thing. I know you're probably thinking, well, hey, I collect my fees semi-annually and I don't know, my standard client fee is $4,000 or whatever. And so I'm taking $2,000 in January and $2,000 in beginning August or whatever it is. Am I, am I in violation of that? Well, you're performing those services throughout the course of the year, you're not pulling down $2,000 you know, in, in fees for a service that you're not going to start for six or seven months. So no, that doesn't necessarily apply to you under those circumstances. Okay, folks. So for many of you, you will have received this. And you know the hope is, is that you can get this back to us by October 2nd, 2023. Of course, you can see we kind of got the disclaimer there. If you don't timely return this checklist, we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to produce a report for you regarding your custody practices. I am sorry, folks, but we do many of these over the course of the year, throughout the year. Additionally, we spent an awful lot of time, you know, just kind of working with you all on, you know, in your individual capacities with your individual situations to make sure the disclosures and your manuals and all this other stuff is kind of worked out and everybody's got questions too. So we've got to keep the trains running on time for this sort of stuff. And I think I've got one final caveat to this. I think, folks, that the best practice for these checklists is to try to treat them a little bit like an examination. So if you're struggling to get to a yes or a no on a question, that's perfectly fine. It's not crazy. Right? Not everybody knows this stuff stone cold. If you're if you're struggling to get to a yes, no on this, you know, I would advise you to, like I said, treat this like an exam. Don't avoid the yes, no answer, and then use the narrative block to sort of explain the situation and ask for advice in that scenario, you can always email us with a question and pose the question to us. Explain the situation there and just say, hey, I'm trying to answer this question, and I'm just not really sure if I am, uh, you know, somebody with check running authority or if I have a general power of attorney. And we can get back to you, uh, or at least more easily diagnose the problem, get that back to you, get you the checklist, and then get everything kind of sorted out. Otherwise, it kind of happens in a strange roundabout manner. Additionally, when examiners come in to do these examinations, they're going to ask for this documentation. This is the testing that you folks do over the course of the year. We do with you to ensure that your compliance policies and procedures are effective and they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're going to look at that and there may be information in that you'd prefer an examiner not to have. All right, folks, if you've got any questions, we're here. We're here to help. And uh, we love to talk compliance. So thanks for bearing with me. Uh, I hope I didn't bore you.